Welcome to Physiotherapy Chats, a Singapore Physiotherapy Association podcast. Today, we have Shern Lim, head of the Musculoskeletal Special Interest Group, hosting our first episode today. She is joined by our two guests, Cindy Ng, Associate Professor at the Singapore Institute of Technology and Senior Principal Physiotherapist working at the Obesity Centre in Singapore General Hospital, and Anthony Goff, Physiotherapy Lecturer at the Singapore Institute of Technology and PhD Candidate at La Trobe University. They discuss the topic on obesity and knee osteoarthritis. from the Musculoskeletal Special Interest Group of the Singapore Physiotherapy Association. So today I have two guests with me who will be presenting on knee osteoarthritis as well as topic of obesity as part of the World Obesity Day. So that's happening on the 4th of March if, you're, if you guys are not actually aware. Okay, so the first speaker that we'll have today would be Cindy Ng. She's a senior physiotherapist, um, senior principal physiotherapist at Singapore General Hospital. Uh, and she also runs the, uh, she also works at the Obesity Center. And as well as she's also currently an uh, associate professor of Singapore, um, the SIT. Okay, she, she currently is also a member of the Singapore Association for the Study of Obesity. And uh, she's sharing with us today on the topic of obesity. So let's get the ball rolling, Cindy. All right. Okay, give me sharing screen. Okay, all right. Okay, all right. So um, obesity is sort of a very sensitive topic. And oftentimes when patients come to you and say, you know, how much weight do I really need to lose in order to improve my health profile? I think this, this little table seems to show quite clearly that at least a minimum of 5%. However, there are certain conditions such as uh, diabetes remission, okay, um, or if we're talking about sleep apnea, okay, obstructive sleep apnea, you notice that the weight loss has to be a bit higher in order to be significant enough to allow them to feel that improvement. So for example, for sleep apnea, they have to lose about 10% or more in order to improve their quality of sleep. Okay, so when we talk about weight loss, um, obesity itself, um, it's a chronic disease. And I think in my following slides, I will talk a little bit about how many of us do not recognize it as a disease itself. Okay, so in Singapore itself, how prevalent is this? And you will notice among men and women uh, in Singapore, the numbers are not very great compared to maybe other ASEAN countries or, or our Caucasian counterparts. However, there are perceived barriers when there are people who come in for treatment for weight loss. And you can see these barriers are quite, um, um, it's quite common even, even in other countries itself, such as obesity not being recognized as a disease, like in Singapore, all right? Uh, there's a lot, uh, lack of training among healthcare professionals like ourselves, how to manage these individuals, how to be sensitive when we approach that subject with uh, patients. Um, failure in maybe primary care, the cost of managing um, obesity itself, all right, and of course, um, maybe poor availability of certain pharmaceutical or medical treatment that's required in order to manage weight. Now, like I mentioned before, 
um, obesity it's very complex it affects multiple organs it's really a metabolic disease itself and many people are shamed all right or blamed because of being overweight or obese which means that people tend to perceive them as not doing enough exercise or not moving enough or eating too much and that's why they are as such um, such bias um, it's not only among their peers or among their family members, but you will see even certain healthcare professionals may even bring that across in their tone and in how they actually speak to their patients. So we need to understand that obesity is a very um, chronic disease itself. Oftentimes, genetics play a role in it. It's not often the um, because they eat too much or because they don't move a lot, all right, there's a genetic component to it, all right, and we need to acknowledge that these individuals or these patients, just as any patients with um, lung disease or, or stroke, needs our help in order to, in their journey towards weight loss, to improve their health profile, all right, in order to, for them to enjoy uh, their quality of life, all right, to perform many ADLs, all right. Now, so there was a systematic review that was done by our local Singaporeans, okay, which looked at what is meaningful weight loss beyond symptomatic relief in uh, patients or adults with OA. And it was a systematic review and meta-analysis. And it's amazing how the 5% always appear. 5% is something that's minimum. So they need to lose at least 5% of their weight loss in order to see that positive impact. So what patients feel in terms of reduced pain, uh, self-reported disability and quality of life, Cost improve, all right, uh, reduce disability. But you'll notice that for the systematic review and many articles that's published out there, the BMI range is actually not very high. It's between 33.6 to about 36.4. So imagine patients that we see, for example, like I work in obesity center, and our patients that we see ranges BMI of 40, 50, up to 70. Okay, all right, and we talk about the load and the weight that's um, loading onto their weight-bearing joints, such as the knees, the hips, all right, okay, you can imagine how much weight do they need to lose in order to make that positive impact, okay, but for this systematic review, it clearly shows that among um, the BMI of 33 or 34 to 36, with mild to moderate OA, not severe ones, usually 5 to 10% weight loss will benefit these adults. Okay. Now, like I mentioned before, it's really hard to initiate a topic of obesity among patients. Um, oftentimes, when I see my patient, I have to ask permission if it's okay to initiate it. You don't usually do it on the first um, visit because you really need to build that rapport and a relationship with your patients because obesity or weight is a very sensitive topic and oftentimes quite unwelcome among certain individuals. Some patients have come to my clinic and say, I see nothing wrong with my weight. Why do I need to lose weight? Why do everyone tell me to lose weight? I feel very happy with my weight. I like what I, I appear. I like my appearance. I like my weight as it is, all right? Um, so really ask permission, all right, if it's okay. And oftentimes when we ask open-ended questions, whether this weight has any impact in terms of their musculoskeletal pain or such as uh, their knee pain, for instance, okay? Try to tie these symptoms to some of the problems that they may have, for example, um, managing their, their um, diabetes, uh, the blood pressure, um, the risk of uh, sleep apnea or the risk of stroke and so on, all right? And, and remember when we manage weight, it's never about exercise, never about just the physio. It's always a multidisciplinary team approach. 
And if you look at my little picture in, in obesity center, for example, where I work, we have not just the surgeons, we have our endocrinologists, we have our psychologists, we have our pharmacists, because there's pharmacological methods as well. We have our dietitians, we have our physiotherapists, all right. Um, we also have nurse clinicians, yeah, okay, coordinators, all right, and we all work together as a team to help the patient in their journey. We say the same lingo, we support them, we encourage them, uh, we let them know it's okay to have sometimes a cheat day, sometimes it's okay to have some setbacks, but let's get back on track again. So really a multidisciplinary team approach is really required in terms of managing uh, weight itself. Yeah, I think that's it. Okay, cool. We'll leave the questions to later. I have some questions myself, so I was just gonna leave that to later. I'm gonna get Anthony in now. So Anthony um, is a lecturer at SSP as well, and he's currently a PhD candidate at La Trobe University. Um, so really, um, he is currently investigating patient education for knee osteoarthritis, something that we know is quite um, closely related to the topic of obesity. So he's under the supervision of Dr. Christian Barton. So today he'll be sharing with us about knee osteoarthritis and we'll talk about his uh, patient-facing information leaflet that he currently is developing with the um, SPA and also um, getting a lot of feedback from Cindy herself as well. Yeah. So Anthony, let's, let's go. Yeah, thank you very much. Let me just share my screen. Okay, okay. can you see that? You see my screen? Good stuff. Okay, so tasked with five slides in five minutes, um, and hopefully this will uh, be a, an extra bit of information and piggyback on what Cindy's already introduced to you a little bit about knee obesity as well. So, first of all, the facts about knee OA. I think uh, these are the key questions we need to know. What is it? How is it diagnosed? What are the risk factors? And what does it look like in Singapore? I've taken a lot of my information from this article here that has just come out this year, and I'd really encourage anyone who's got an interest in lower limb osteoarthritis to have a look at this. It's packed full of good, easy to follow diagrams, etc. But first of all, what is it? I think traditionally we used to think of knee osteoarthritis just as this degenerative wear and tear type condition. And I think now we're starting to realize a lot more that it doesn't just affect the articular cartilage. It also affects the muscles, the ligaments, the synovium, joint capsule. So it really affects a lot of things and it's very systemic. And actually some of those improvements in weight loss that Cindy mentioned is not just due to the load that's going through the knee, it's probably actually due to the systemic factors and the systemic impact uh, as well on the, whole, on the system as a whole. And so this is a really nice um, diagram that came from this article that I recommended and I'd recommend anyone to have a look a bit more detail about that. The second fact I want to go through is how is it diagnosed? I think most people think that knee osteoarthritis is only diagnosed through an x-ray, when actually we've got very good clinical criteria. The NICE criteria is probably the, the most well-known, and that's being 45 years or older, activity-related knee pain, and either no uh, morning stiffness or morning stiffness that lasts no longer than 30 minutes. So we do have the power to diagnose this without an x-ray. Risk factors, as Cindy's already mentioned, uh, we know that obesity and increased weight is a risk factor. Females are also more likely to get it than males. 
previous sporting injury is something as well, as well that is a, a, previous, a, a risk factor for knee osteoarthritis. The rates within Singapore are pretty um, aligned with around the rest of the world. So up to one in four people over the age of 50 have symptomatic knee OA. There's got a prevalence of about 11% in Singapore. And it's higher in the Indian and Malay populations compared to the Chinese. So there's a lot of myths about NEOA, and this is something that the SPA put out last week, I think, on their Instagram. There's a really nice infographic. I think I've covered the first one, that it's not just this wear and tear. The second myth, that imaging is correlated to pain severity, is another thing that I think is uh, very commonly believed by a lot of different clinicians, GPs, doctors, and physiotherapists. Whereas actually someone's uh, image can look really bad on an x-ray and symptomatically they might be quite good and vice versa as well. But I think this really puts people off exercising and people think that exercise is dangerous because they've got this wear and they're scared of wearing their joints a bit more. But actually it's one of the best things we can do. And finally, another myth is about the joint replacements are the best cure or as we'll discover in just a moment, is suitable for relatively few people. And most people should be receiving this first line uh, exercise education and weight loss. Another key reference I'd just like to mention is this Three Steps uh, editorial. Came out last year. It's got a, lot, a bunch of uh, very well-respected physiotherapy researchers in knee osteoarthritis and pain. I'd recommend having a look at that. And they've got a few more myths in there as well. So this is the treatment pyramid for knee osteoarthritis. I really want to get this point across that everyone with knee osteoarthritis, regardless of age, uh, severity of symptoms and comorbidities, should receive education and exercise and then weight control as well, if appropriate, as first line care. Few, so some people will then need some pharmacological pain relief or maybe some passive treatments, say insoles or walking sticks or braces, and then very few people should need surgery. And what's really interesting is there's a study um, back in 2014 in the US. They uh, looked at their cohort of people who had had a total knee replacement. And what they found is that only 10% of those had received physiotherapy in the five years prior to, knee prior to their surgery. And that's quite shocking. So obviously we're going wrong somewhere. We're not providing this first line care. And this is something that's of interest to me in my research that I'll just very quickly introduce. First of all, we know that education is unanimously recommended uh, as evidence for knee osteoarthritis and also many other conditions, but it's based on actually either really weak or very outdated information or research. So previous, res uh, sorry, preliminary results from my systematic review says that yes, education as a standalone is beneficial, but it's not clinically beneficial. We don't get these clinically important improvements in pain and function. Uh, unless we combine it with exercise therapy. And another really interesting finding is that actually the, the type of education you give is really important. So those, um, that education that's based on some specific education or learning or behavior change theory is much more effective than just passing someone an information leaflet. And we might get on to discussing that a bit more in the later stages. I'm also looking at comparing what clinicians uh, are delivering for people with knee osteoarthritis and finding out whether actually we're meeting patients' needs. And this is something that's uh, very interesting. We haven't fully finished the results yet, but I hope to publish that later this year. And then finally, we're looking at what's out there on the internet. Can we trust information that's out there? And we're looking both internationally and at Singapore. 
And ultimately, we want to build an online interactive toolkit for people with knee osteoarthritis to use. But in the meantime, as you suggested, and it's been mentioned, we, uh, I've worked with the SPA to develop uh, an information leaflet for people with knee osteoarthritis with the special interest group. And this is really to promote this as a, as a resource to use with our patients. It's very physiotherapy focused. It's very first line um, care focused. So focusing on education, exercise and weight loss. Um, we hope that people can use this in clinical practice with their patients. We've got, we've got space for people to write down their uh, goals. We've got space for people to write down exercises as well. It's going to be freely available on the SPA website. Uh, and I just encourage as many people as we can to try and use this. And please feel free to feed back to me for any improvements as well. So that's where I'll leave it for now. And then I think we're going to start a bit of a, a discussion. Thank you, Anthony. No problem. So um, that was a really good presentation. Okay, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna um, ask some questions. I think this uh, this would be a question that is kind of like open to both of you guys. Okay, so I think the first question I have would be um, when we talk about a multidisciplinary team approach, uh, especially with regards to Cindy's question, um, who are the who are the people that you feel are key beyond the clinical team? Which means like you've kind of highlighted nutritionists, dietitians, and then the, all that is within the clinical setting. Um, who are these key people that are um, important? Like, is it family? Like, how do people adhere to it? Or is it really just boiled out, uh, boils down to the individual when it comes back to like obesity? So based on experience, <laughs> I think the family is very important. Mm. Uh, usually when I have young patients, I get their parents to sit in. <laughs> I think their parents have to understand and support the, the teens and the young adults, you know, in terms of encouraging them uh, rather than stigmatizing them by saying, you're lazy, you're not moving, you don't want to exercise. <laughs> it doesn't help, seriously. Mm. The word and the mm. tone that you use doesn't help. Um, and so it's, it's oftentimes, uh, sometimes we use motivation interviewing to help the, the young ones who are a bit ambivalent and, you know, I'm, I'm very young, I don't have anything, I, I'm okay with my weight. <laughs> yeah, and to, to see what, what are they willing to do, you mm. know, even if it's five minutes of their time and, and just getting their family members to support, uh, support them and building that um, healthy uh, body image of themselves. You know what I mean? Mm. So, so that's, that's very part, that is very important when we manage individuals like that. I think among the older ones, usually their husbands or their wives come along. And it's very interesting because the wives sometimes will do the exercise with me and then the husband will join along. <laughs> and then they will go for walks together and then they will sort of spend that couple time, you know, so, so there is some overflow in terms of social, you know, in terms of building relationships, especially during this COVID period, you know, you, you want to build that relationship between them. They together they go along in this journey. Uh, in terms of food, so if if husband loves to eat fried chicken and wife needs to cook something healthy, but husband don't want to eat anything but fried chicken. So it, it, it takes a partnership <laughs> between the two to sort of work towards that. And, and some of my patients go on like meal replacements. Um, and, and so both parties have to work together. 
you know, yeah, because they, they tend to have that family, social gathering to eat together with their children. Same thing with their children. What if, if I want to eat healthy, I must make sure that I inculcate that behavior even in my children. Yeah, and, and if, if my children love fried things, how then can I make it slightly healthier? Because it's really hard to change behavior. And I remember one of my psychologists saying that if it takes about 23,000 hours where you build this behavior, imagine how much time you need to break it, you know? So, so likewise, uh, behavior starts from young. <laughs> so getting, getting on board the family is really important. Teachers sometimes, uh, family members, yeah, besides the clinicians themselves. Yeah, and I'd echo that. I think family members can be really important. Um, for the Neo-A population, obviously, they tend to be a lot older. I'd say generally they're a bit more independent, but there's definitely value in incorporating spouses if needs be. And there was quite a lot of research uh, in the 90s and early 2000s into spouse-assisted uh, pain coping skills training. And from memory, um, I think if it's spouse assisted or just independent, they both improve clinically. Uh, slight more improvements for those who have got their spouse, but it's not clinically different between those two groups. So for some people, I'm sure it'll make a huge difference. That is interesting. So would you ever consider expanding on the patient education in terms of like family education, what choices and stuff in terms of like your leaflet? Because that seems to be quite important in terms of educating the family members on what to say. Because yeah. uh, we might be sensitive to it, but not so much the family. Yeah, and I might jump in there as well. And that's another, hopefully, a really nice thing as well of developing the leaflet for people with NeoA is that they've got something to go away and take home to their spouse. And their spouse may be like, well, why do you need to eat less? And maybe if they've got this information as well, they can really use that. Um, I know some places do have information leaflets, but I, I think they're kind of used to different degrees, but that can certainly be used to exercise others if they're not able to come to the clinical appointment as well. And I'm sure Cindy would have done the same, given out lots of information for uh, kids maybe whose family can't come, um, and then they can pass that on as well to educate their other family members. Okay, um, I guess the next question would be for Anthony. Um, I think it was quite appalling that ten, only 10% of physiotherapists are really using implemented guidelines. I mean, like, yeah, guidelines. Yeah. Um, are implementing the, the, the best guidelines. And what, are, what do you think are some of the barriers? Or even like Cindy, if you have anything to add, like, oh, you know, yeah, why is it, is it, why is it so hard from, you know, in a real setting to <coughs> adhere to the guidelines? Yeah, so I think this is a, it's a very multifaceted problem. I think, first of all, there's a lot of qualitative research in people with NeoA, I'm going to bias this on, that they're really confused. Um, they get a lot of misinformation from the media, from the internet. Um, they kind of do believe in these myths and think, for example, that surgery will fix it. Um, lots of people are interested in stem cell therapy. That's come up in my... Um, Certainly, my project looking at what people want to hear was actually that's really in its infancy and uh, the media potentially glorifies it a little bit. So I think there's that aspect of it, the misinformation of the individual themselves. There's also the kind of a, a misunderstanding, maybe a lack of knowledge from healthcare professionals about physical activity guidelines. And uh, I've been involved in a paper that's actually just come out last week to do with that, a big multinational survey. 
um, potentially even a lack of knowledge about clinical practice guidelines as well. Or it may be the case of um, physiotherapists have learned this kind of a long time back and the clinical practice guidelines have changed and haven't been able to necessarily keep up to, to date with the latest research. And maybe they do still feel that they think it is a wear and tear disease based on their education from early. And so I think there's a lot of different um, reasons why people don't provide first line care. Um, and we don't quite know. Also, another thing as well is actually uh, some other research we did here locally in Singapore among musculoskeletal physiotherapists was that actually our formal assessment of physical activity is really poor. Um, I can't remember the stats, but it was roughly made, actually no, no physiotherapist could answer that correctly. So when we said what physical activity measures do you use, everyone actually provided uh, physical performance measures. So like sit to stand or other things. Whereas actually there's the UCLA um, physical activity questionnaire, there's other single item measures of physical activity. And I think maybe because we don't assess physical activity and some other aspects, maybe that's why uh, we're not providing the care or maybe even we're not assessing someone's knowledge level. We're not offering them the opportunity. What do you want to know about your osteoarthritis? And maybe that's something uh, within the NEOA space we can do to help bring up the uh, compliance to first-line care. And Cindy, I don't know if you've got anything to add to that from an obesity point. Mm, I think sometimes in a clinical setting, we don't really have much time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So when a person comes in, knee pain straight away, what do the physio do within 20, 30 minutes? Assess and then teach the exercise and then send them off. See me later in two to four weeks time. <laughs> yeah. So the education bit is really sort of put behind all right because you want the patient to feel like he, he, he has been assessed and he's given something to take home to do um, I think sometimes it's it's as such in the clinical setting because we have so many patients coming through um, so that time could be one of the barriers for for clinicians to actually talk a little bit more about this and I, I think even in the orthopedic clinics you will see that as well do you want surgery if not you see me we open it. We'll see me there when you're ready for the surgery. You know, something like that. Or you're too young. You go and see the physio, and then um, when you at a certain age, and you come and see me for surgery. When you're so, done. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So we all know that. I mean, this is reality. So so sometimes that's how quick we are to bring the patient out the door, and we don't really have that time to really spend. And I think the leaflet is really good because it will provide that domain where patients can actually take the time to read. And then if, if they ever get the chance to know about this and they, they read it, they can always come to a physio. You know, I read about this. Is this true? You know, because they read so much yeah. in the internet and they will come to us, you know, the glucosamine is very good. Should I take it? Or should I go for yeah. stem cell? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I will wait one day when they read Anthony's leaflet and say to the physio, say, you know, look, <laughs> you know, I should be doing exercise now, even though I have knee pain. What exercise yeah. should I be doing? I think that, that will be that will make my day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that that's cool. I, I mean, I'm I'm just curious. Do you guys currently assess uh physical activity, uh, or how do you guys do that in the obesity center? Because I I I reckon that it's quite closely related to obesity, right? Um, like uh, Anthony was just mentioning like the the need to assess um how much people are doing. So what is like a measure? Or what is the the outcome measure that you guys use to show that oh this person actually ha actually has improved or is it quite 
patient specific? I think the simplest one that we all supposed to use is supposed to be the iPad, <laughs> which is really fast. Whether they do any vigorous, moderate, light walking, and then how many hours they are sedentary on a weekday. It's, it's actually mm. very fast task. And mm. if you know our patients, a lot of them is no, 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 sit for six to eight hours. <laughs> Maybe mm. walk 10 minutes in a day. So, so you more or less know where they are in terms of physical activity. So I think that was a quick one that we tend to use, at least in obesity center. Even when you see the doctors or the the, the the surgeons and all that, it's actually part of our obesity questionnaire, the iPad. Mm. Yeah, mm. and if they, and cool. they see us, we will ask them as well. Of course, if you want to dig deep, you can ask them how many steps you take if they have like an app or a watch or something like that. A little bit more quantitative in that sense. Yeah, mm. they spend 150 minutes a week, you know, in terms of doing moderate exercise. But, you know, a lot of us can't quantify what's moderate. Um, especially the older population. <laughs> yeah. But definitely how many hours they sit, they can tell you. Yeah. <laughs> the sedentary time is a killer. <laughs> I think uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask this, um, probably a final question on behalf of the private practitioners. Uh, other than other than like family members, what else do you think uh, people in the private setting who don't have access to like the nurse, the nutritionist, that, you know, what sort of stuff do you recommend like people who are pra practicing on their own? What kind of stuff could they do other than use, utilizing Anthony's new leaflet that's upcoming? <laughs> what else do you recommend or what else do you think would be beneficial? Anthony, you can add as well. Okay, in, on, the, on both like NEOA and... Uh, I guess obesity. Yeah, I might. Can I jump in first? Is that all right, Cindy? Um, I guess the potentially an earlier question to that is: is providing information about weight loss within a physiotherapist scope of practice? And I'm personally of the opinion that absolutely. I think we are in a position to be able to provide this information. Um, there may be instances where it's too specialist for us, and that, I think that's fine. But I think a lot of physiotherapists potentially don't offer weight loss advice because they don't feel it's within our scope. But actually, if we look at what that first line intervention is, is that education and exercise. Absolutely, we're the, we're the specialists in that. So I think to answer that step forward, we're okay to do it. I think some people feel bad. I think some, uh, it's, not, it's something that's not covered very well at um, education training or traditionally hasn't. And so maybe... Uh, physiotherapists might have to be upskilled but I personally think there's lots of information and advice out there um, not just within Singapore but also internationally just some real basic healthy eating tips real basic calorie intake real basic um, you know what what should your plate look like etc and you don't have to be a specialist I think you can be honest with um, individuals as well and say uh, look, this isn't my particular area of expertise, but if you combine this information I'm telling you about diet with our exercise, we're going to have the, the greatest benefit and they can seek further help if they want. I think also thinking of the local contacts and as Cindy's kind of mentioned it earlier as well about the when we're out and about maybe looking for food rather than going for that fried chicken, looking for that healthier choice symbol that is all over um, different menus, etc. I think these sorts of things we can really encourage people to go to. Um, 
yeah, in terms yeah. of other other people to involve around from a private practice position in Singapore, I'm not too sure. Cindy might know a few more services that maybe could be referred to or that uh, GPs could refer into as well. So I might let her take it from here. <laughs> um, okay, so I think if, if it's medication, I think the GPs usually do prescribe some of the pharmaceutical, mm. yeah, the, the pharmaceutical drugs. Uh, mm. If they want to do surgery to lose weight because they're really morbidly obese, then there are private bariatric surgeons out there in like Farrah Park, Glad Eagles and so on. Um, but I think as, as first line, we can start to encourage them to move. <laughs> Some movement is better than none. Um, mm. I think food-wise, there's a lot on the health promotion board websites. So much information. I think sometimes we give them very simple tips, even on some of the recent TV shows that talk about intermittent fasting. I, actually, there's so much things out there in Channel News Asia where they were covering all the various type of fat diets, different type of diets and so on. So I think simple things that I always tell them, eat slower. <laughs> eat slower, number one. Two, whatever you have in front of you, try to take 20% less. That's always very simple. That means you, you eat 80% of what you have on your plate. The healthy plate is, of course, really good. All right? And then, of course, we always say avoid deep fried, avoid you know, oily food, uh, take soupy stuff. You know, these are quite generic stuff that we tend to give to our patients. Um, if they want to try things like intermittent fasting or um, they want to try meal replacement, I think they would need to see a dietitian or nutritionist because... Um, some of them may have certain medical conditions and if they go on such diet, it can actually cause more harm than good. All right, for example, like their kidneys and if they have gout flares and so on. So I think for, for, for these individuals, they may need to see a professional regarding in terms of the food type. Um, mm. Yeah, but I think in general, if it's just a general tip, it's always eating 80% of what you have on your plate. Uh, use a smaller plate <laughs> so it doesn't look like you know that's a lot of food on it uh, avoid the mm. fried stuff eat slower because people tend to gobble their food really fast if they eat slow they tend to feel full yeah so simple, mm. things, simple tips like that I think we can always advise and I think very important they must be accountable to you if you are in private practice and you have that bond if they are accountable to you and you see them regularly enough they will actually report to you how well they've been doing it's amazing what you can do with them. They will say, I've been exercising and I take your advice. I actually try to cut down my bubble tea or I stop my coke completely, let's say. Okay, mm. and then mm. this is my weight. Oh, very proud. And then you affirm mm. them, you encourage them. And then the next time you come, you take a simple way and say, wow, you've done really well. Actually, you know, that, that's good enough in a private practice, actually. It's that affirmation, the encouragement, you know, having that um, accountability to you. Yeah, they need someone yep. to be accountable to. I think that works perfectly in a private setting. And I agree with Anthony. I think physios can play a big role. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And speaking oh. positive language to them because they, I think they hear enough of negative ones. <laughs> mm. Like very judgy ones. <laughs> yeah, very judgy. Like oh, you're lazy, you just don't want to move. <laughs> you're giving a lot mm. of excuses, you know, things like that. Yeah. yeah. So, so as, as physios, I think if we speak a positive language, we affirm them. They will go a long way even just with you. They mm. may even be able to lose that weight with exercise and just changing or tweaking a little bit of their food or their drinks. Yeah. That's cool. All right. That's all the questions I have. Do you guys have anything to add? 
No, I think that's all good, thanks. Uh, just to re-shout uh, out, if anyone has any feedback, we're always welcome to hear it, or I think as well, SPA, if there's any other ideas for leaflets, I think they're keen to listen. Yeah, yeah, also, I was just thinking like, oh no, I totally forgot to say that this is a five by five times five until you, you said that, and I was like, oh yeah, this, it's a five times five, they have five slides for five minutes to present yeah. what? Ever the topic is. <laughs> so I remember that in the next one that we do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I guess for today, that's all we have for, for everyone. So yeah. You have been listening to Physio Chats, a Singapore Physiotherapy Association podcast. Do look out for the release of our next episode on the topic of physiotherapy in women's health later this month. We'll see you then.